On the Other Side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. It has since been taken offline by Open Stories, but you can now find an archive of all 15 episodes on chrisway.com slash O-T-O-S or on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. On the Other Side was a podcast project dedicated to discussing religious, post-religious, and religion-adjacent issues from a distinctly millennial perspective. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, On the Other Side, Millennials and Religion. So today, I continue our non-Mormon faith transition series with guest Chris Armour. Chris Armour was not born into a religious household, but became Christian of his own volition when he was in high school. He attended a Christian university and became a Baptist pastor. Years down the road, he began to question certain beliefs that eventually led him away from Christianity. And this is his story. Hi, Chris. Hi. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Uh, but first of all, I want you to tell our listeners where you are currently. Oh, yeah. Currently, I'm in a little town called Quincy, Illinois. I'm uh, in the middle of a family vacation, and uh, my family uh, has been great. And this was a great time for me to be able to join you uh, and do this. But uh, yeah, well, seeing hey. family, uh, my mother, uh, seeing my grandmother. So. Been now, your mother and grandmother live in Quincy? No. So my mother lives in Shelbyville. Um, I've got a good friend of mine who lives in Quincy. And so I'm going to have breakfast with him tomorrow. Um, so, and you're going to Nauvoo? <laughs> so we pass through. Yeah. So we're, we're about 30 miles away um, from, you know, all of the uh, I guess, exciting sites, as I'm you know, aware of in Mormon history, Carthage and Nauvoo and um, past the near Palmyra. So, yes. I just feel like this is so serendipitous because <laughs> most of our listeners are Mormon or post-Mormon. And um, Quincy and Nauvoo all have, you know, very big place in our, those, you know, both those cities and Palmyra, of course, all of those cities have um, a big part in our history. So it's so fascinating that you are there because Quincy is like population, what? Uh, I, I know it, Nauvoo is like a thousand people, right? Or like 1500 people or something. Yeah. Well, it's, it's big enough to have a lot of the major stores, although it looks like uh, the Best Buy recently closed now, <laughs> so I, <laughs> it wasn't large enough to sustain that one, I guess. Uh, well, that's that's crazy that you're there, but really cool. Like I said, I I think it's serendipitous. Let's start with kind of your beginnings as a child. You were born into a non-religious household. Like neither of your parents were religious. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, they had a belief in God, but it wasn't, um, expressed in any way through any type of ritual. There were, there were no prayers done. There was no reading of the Bible. Church attendance, um, was something that happened maybe, uh, every once in a while when, you know, someone passed away or, uh, when there was some event, um, that a family member invited, um, us to. So, uh, yeah, I didn't. I, I didn't have much exposure at all. 
were they Christian? Like when they, when you say they believe in God, was it just kind of, they believed in an abstract God or was it like they also believed in Christ or? Yeah, they were culturally Christian. So, and, and and I see, yeah. So I grew up in in Louisiana, which is uh, the Bible Belt. And, you know, most people you ask um, would say that they are Christian, even though they have no uh, outward expression of that faith. Okay. So you kind of grew up in a non-religious household, you know, um, and then you, uh, did you have like a happy childhood, a happy non-religious childhood? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, I mean, how did you learn morals? Yeah. So, um, so my, my, my stepfather, um, grew up in a very religious household and, uh, he would tell me stories. Uh, it was a Pentecostal household he, he went to, and he would tell me stories about his, uh, mother going to these conferences. And, uh, one story was very spooky to me. I remember as a kid, he said that he was with his mother and, uh, they were at this conference and all of a sudden this dark figure showed up on the stage and then everybody started speaking in tongues. And it was, and I don't know if that's what led him to not get too involved in, uh, in, yeah, in religion, intense. but he, he was moral. Um, and so he, uh, did raise us to be, um, very respectful of very, uh, much, um, I call it a Southern gentleman because it was myself, my brother, and then we had two stepbrothers. So there were four boys in the house. Oh, wow. And yeah, yeah. But uh, what's that? Rambunctious group? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were, we were pretty, um, well, I, I would say that uh, when no one was watching, we were rambunctious. <laughs> and so he, he had quite the, um, he was quite the disciplinarian. So we, we uh, stayed in, yeah, stayed in line. Um, okay. So, yeah, Pentecostals, they don't they don't mess around. So <laughs> yeah. So that kind of scared him away maybe. Um but you sounds like you know you were kind of raised in a home that was very disciplined, structured sounds like. Um and then when you were about 8, you or how old were you when you kind of started getting interested in uh, religion. Yeah. So my, my first exposure to church and God in a more formal way was when, uh, I attended a church, um, through a, a church bus ministry. And what that is, is, um, a church bus goes into neighborhoods and usually it's lower income neighborhoods and and people on a Saturday will pass out flyers and tell people in the neighborhood that, you know, if you have a kid that would like to go to church, the bus will be here, you know, at this time, have them come on the bus and they'll, you know, have a good Bible story. And I mean, that just candy. would never fly now, would it? I mean, send I, your children onto this bus and we will save them, you know. Well, and, and, and that's why I, I, you know, I think it does still work, but it, it just works in certain um I guess certain areas, uh, as I mentioned, uh, areas where kids kind of run free or more freely. Yeah. So they kind of, yeah, I mean, and I think that's the case with a lot of religions in general is they tend to have more success with when they're proselytizing. They tend to have more success with those that are maybe lower income or uh, in circumstances that are a little bit more difficult. Sure. So how old were you when this bus started coming around and picking up the children? 
Yeah. So um, my mom heard about the bus through a neighbor friend who sent her children. And at the time, I would have, I'm going to guess I was around six or seven. Oh, okay. So pretty young. Yeah, but I was pretty young. And, and really all I remember from my, my time on the bus was that um, if I was really good in, in the Bible class, um, they gave a prize to the kid who sat the straightest and was quiet. And I actually, I'm happy to say, won that prize a number of times. <laughs> I don't um, doubt it. I can tell. Wait, so a question about that, though. So these buses, this wasn't on the bus that they gave you the right. prize, was it? Where, where no. did the bus take you? Yeah, so the bus takes you to the church, and and at the church they've got their. Um, and these are Baptist church. This was about yep. This was a Baptist okay. church, and the um the they they have something called the children's church. So it was just uh, you know aimed for um, children from kindergarten all the way through, I believe it was sixth grade or fifth grade, and so they would have them all together and you know sing the songs and play the silly games. Um, and have a Bible story that was, you know, more geared toward that age range. Okay. So you started, did you start attending these services regularly? Like when you were six, seven, eight? No, no. So because, yeah, because this bus was um, connected to my, my, my mother's friend, um, as much as I recall, we didn't have a bus that came to our neighborhood in particular. So it was, it was every once in a while hit and miss and so, you know, maybe I, I'm going to say my best guess is we went 10, 11 times. Um, but of those, I remember, you know, winning a couple of times. <laughs> so uh, yeah. it, it wasn't a lot. Okay. So that kind of happened. And then you're, you're getting a little bit older. And yeah. by the time you were a freshman in high school, you were fully committed to be a Christian. So what happened from the bus yeah. to freshman year? That led yeah, to so I like to think that what I learned on the bus was the foundational um, truths of, you know, as I understood at the time that there was a God, knowing about Jesus, knowing, you know, having some sort of respect or reverence for the Bible, um, you know, understanding that I'm morally, you know, depraved and I need help and you know some of the foundational things that <laughs> are you need important to learn to when lead. you're seven and eight and nine <laughs> so well you know for uh it's all for somebody in the south okay. <laughs> yeah yeah um so I had those but as I got older and and we moved away I I, I really had no church exposure from about nine ten years old because it was every once in a while um all the way until I was you know, 13. So three, four years, there was no church, um, no Bible reading, nothing at all. And I had a friend in my band class. So I played trombone and he sat next to me and played baritone. And he was a great player. He would, in fact, he made all state, um, which was a great accomplishment for him. He was one of the best baritone players in the state of Louisiana. And he lived in my neighborhood as well. So we would practice our instruments together because I wanted to you know, be one day in, um, in the Allstate band as well. And, uh, he was very religious. Uh, his mother was, um, was he Baptist? He was, but he came from one thing about Baptists is there's a lot of different flavors. Yeah. And yeah. So he came from what's, um, known as missionary Baptist, 
but even missionary Baptists are a number of different flavors, but missionary Baptists tend to be very um, racially segregated. Maybe I, that's the best way I can say it. Um, and it, it, interestingly enough, even um, after I uh, ended up committing to the church and, and attending the church that he was attending at the time, he eventually did leave that church and go to another church that he was more familiar with that was more aligned with how he believed concerning the integration of other races. So yeah, very, you know, very interesting group. Yeah. Okay. Um, So don't hold that against me, but that, yeah. So that's where he came from. And, um, but at the time he was attending a different church and, and that's the church he invited me to. Um, And this church being another flavor of Baptist was known as an independent uh, fundamental Baptist. And the reason they're known independents because that one time they were connected to the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest group of Baptists in America. And uh, during the 60s um, or so, uh, there were a couple of professors who entered into the college system and were teaching things that a lot of conservative Baptist churches didn't like. Um, they were questioning things about the Bible. And, and so there was sort of a revolt. And uh, these, these Wait, conservative was, churches said, "Who?" So the the pastors were questioning what the churches were teaching, or the and so the conservative um, the conservative churches. Uh, let me take one step back. So in the Southern Baptist Convention, um, it, it's made up of you know thousands of churches that would identify as a Southern Baptist, and they give to a um, give collectively to support missions. Um, to support also the seminaries. The, the, and, and so maybe I should have been more clear the, the, um, when I said colleges, but the seminaries where the, the pastors are trained. Okay. And so since there's a portion of their, of their, um, their offering or their, their income um, going to support the seminaries, there were some conservative pastors who thought, you know, we don't want our money supporting a college professor who doesn't believe like we do about something like the inerrancy of the Bible. So that resulted in a group of Baptist churches breaking off of the Baptist convention. And they, they then, you know, became known as independent Baptists because they know we're no longer attached to a convention. So this is so fascinating because like in religions like Mormonism or Catholicism, there's like a centralized governing body, right? There's, there's like a right. Pope and then, you know, a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Same within Mormonism. There's a prophet, 12 apostles, blah, 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 you know, it goes down. And um, there's definitely a centralized governing body. And so if you go to like a Mormon congregation in Spain, for example, or Japan, there it's going to be almost identical to one you would go to here. Now, of course, there might be right. little things here and there because the further you get away from the centralized body, the more you kind of deviate from the plan, so to say. But, but in general, it's very controlled from the centralized governing body. And so with the Baptist faith, it sounds like every church is just kind of its own governing body. You is that you hit the nail on the head. 
No, that is correct. And actually, that is one of the foundational beliefs of the Baptists. That's, you know, that we're taught in, uh, we were taught in, in college. Um, the, you know, the, the, there was an acrostic for, for Baptists that identified the belief. So B, for example, the Bible is our authority. Um, but uh, one of the ones that were was very uh, foundational, what you're hitting on is, is P, the priesthood of the believer and how they interpret that is that every believer is their, if you will, in a sense, their own authority. Um, that no one should be able to tell them how to interpret the Bible. So within every believer, there is the ability to be self-governing. And so every ch- church is self-governed. So even in the Southern Baptist Convention, even though there's a number of churches that do collectively give to support something like missions across the world, that convention can't tell any church what to do, what pastor to have, what music to use. Um, They can have a doctrinal belief so that if a church doesn't align, they can say, well, you're no longer a part of our convention, but that's the extent of it. They, They can't dictate what that church does in any way. So it's kind of like the convention gets money from individual churches that are part of the convention and the churches get their money from the uh, members of their congregation. Yes, correct. Does it ever go the other way around? Like the convention gives churches money? Because what if, what if there's a church that doesn't get enough money from their members? So yes, um, that does happen in the case of new churches. Or if there was um, a church that for some reason, um, you know, they deemed it necessary to keep it alive. Um, but mostly just new churches, um, that pastor could be supported uh, full-time by the Southern Baptist Convention's missionary organization. Um, that would enable him to focus full-time on building up the church. So, but, okay, so let's say there's been a church that's been around for like 20 years. Yeah. And there's like fewer and fewer members. Yeah. Fewer, less money coming in. Yeah. And they can't afford their building or their, I mean, do yeah. they just kind of have to sell everything and not yeah. Yeah, just it, have it, to close as a church? So the way a lot of their constitutions are written is if they get to the point where they can no longer um, support, you know, the, the church staying open, that um, the assets of that church will get um, sent to other nonprofit organizations or specifically churches. Um, and the members would then go and attend another church. Okay. So they have this belief that um, everybody is kind of their own, um, their own mouthpiece to God or, you know, God mm-hmm. speaks to them. But how do, so how do they interpret the Bible when it talks about like apostles and prophets and, and those yeah. things? How? So, yeah, so the Baptist interpretation of that is the apostles were, were specific um, individuals that had seen the risen Christ. And so that office um, of Baptist would believe um, went away when those original apostles died. So the apostolic office was a kind of a, there was a need for this transitional leadership. Um, and they believe that, you know, like Paul the Apostle was was building up these churches and putting in place bishops or, you know, Baptists would call them pastors, basically overseers, 
um, over these individual congregations. And, and that's how churches continue um, to be governed. So it's a congregational form of government. So ultimately the congregation um, has a say through, um, you know, voting. Um, uh, but that pastor is the overseer uh, of the, the day-to-day operations and strategy and uh, other things like that. Okay. All right. So much different, much. different. <laughs> yeah. And they don't. And so even though it's like their individual um, relationship with God, do you still have to be Baptist? I mean, what if you're like Methodist or Pentecostal or Mormon, but like, what if they're some other denomination? Are they still considered to have be fine because they yeah, believe in that, Christ? Yeah, that's a great question. What, and I can't speak for Baptists as a whole because they're so diverse, um, but I'm going to try. So uh, just know that there, if there's a Baptist that listens to this, they're like, well, that's not what we believe in. Okay, I understand that because, um, yeah. you know, it's many flavors. But uh, in general, um, so Baptists would believe that, yes, you can have salvation um, without believing the tenets of the Baptist tradition. Um, so you can come come to salvation, come to Christ. Uh, they would still believe that, you know, you're in error um, because you are <laughs> interpreting the Bible in a different way than, than they believe you should. Um, and, and also, if you were to come from a different church, uh, so say you were um, baptized as a Presbyterian, and, and you, so and typically Presbyterians do baptize infants um, and you, you decided to change what you believe and you go to a Baptist church and you say, you know, I would like to become a member of your church. Uh, they would require that you be rebaptized. Um, in fact, that's how the Baptists got their name is they were known as rebaptizers. Um, and uh, so you and would they do you'd, baptism by immersion, right? Yes, you'd be doing it by immersion, but it, you would also be... Um, indicating that you're aligning yourself with the beliefs of that church. So, and some are a little bit more looser on, on that interpretation of it. Some would just see it as an identification with your um, relationship with Christ. You, you know, you've died and now you've risen to new life. Um, Others see it as you are aligning yourself with the beliefs of of our church. And they would take that from, I think it's in Acts where um, you find that there were some disciples of the uh, John the Baptist. And they said, yeah, we've you know heard um, about John, but we don't know much about Christ. And once they heard about that and they aligned themselves with the new teaching, they were baptized uh, um, again. Okay. So, so, so they kind of believe, the Baptists believe that they, they have the correct interpretation or, or, um, the, the gospel, would you call it the gospel? Yeah, well, so, some would. And, and I, and I'll tell you that, especially in the South, um, there are some who are so fundamentalist, um, in their belief, um, that they have the true interpretation of the Bible, um, that they're known as Baptist writers, and and the reason is they, be, you know, they believe genuinely that Baptists are only the true, um, or those who are Baptist are only um, the true bride of Christ, and they have this interesting interpretation where others in heaven are just guests of the bride. 
Um, mm. But they are the bride. Um, now, I, I will say that is a very small minority position among Baptists in general, but just to illustrate that there are a number of just interesting beliefs out there that are still attached to Baptist. Um, I mean, Westboro Baptist Church is an example. Yeah, that's an most, But that would be, you know, that might represent, my best estimate, maybe like 0.05% of what most Baptists would well, say. Well, I think yeah, there are only like 30 members. Like the yeah. Westboro Baptist Church is only, And how do they justify their their hate and you know what I mean? Like yeah. how yeah. In the Bible, because obviously most Baptists are not like that. So right. it's just so, it's so extreme. Yeah. Um, you just wonder how they justify that, but, I, yeah. but you can always justify it. You can always find a way. I mean, if you go in the old Testament, you can find a lot of things to justify. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and something else to, to, I guess make mention of is a lot of the large Baptist churches now don't have Baptists in their name, but they are Baptists in what they believe. Um, so for example, maybe I don't, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Saddleback church or pastor Rick Warren. He, he's, oh, yeah. given, okay. So he's a Baptist. Um, that's a Baptist church. And I, and as far as I understand, I believe they're still aligned with the Southern Baptist convention, but you wouldn't know it. Um, another church, um, that I know at one time was, um, Maybe you've heard of Pastor Andy Stanley, um, uh, North Point. It's a so. church of, you know, 30, 40,000, maybe more, maybe less, but it's it's close to there. It's a large church. Once again, there's a church. Most people wouldn't know it's Baptist. And, and that's actually been intentional. Um, a lot of Baptist churches understand that there are so many Baptists um, and they don't want to be confused. And people think that they believe something that they don't. And so a lot of them have dropped the name. So, okay. So it says, I just looked up Rick Warren. It says he's an evangelical. Um, so yes. weird. Yeah, no. so Evan- evangelical. Yeah, evangelical. That's not contradictory to Baptist. So um, evangelical just is is a general way of saying someone believes in uh, that that salvation is by Christ alone. Um, it's not of works. Um, they believe in, you know, evangelizing or sharing that gospel. So, um, so most Baptists are, be, are evangelical. What would be in contradiction to a Baptist belief? Like, give me some examples. Yeah. So things like baptizing infants, um, that are common in Presbyterian or Methodist, um, most Baptist churches would reject, um, any, t- any outward sh- show of spiritual gifts such as speaking in tongues or uh, that's common in Pentecostal type churches. Um, Most, most of your Baptist churches um, believe in only um, male uh, pastors. So only, only men can um, be the overseers. Okay. Um, And so that's a little different than, than some churches. Um, Trying to think of, of some of the other, um, well, I mean, certainly the, the Bible uh, is the, the sole authority. So there's no additional um, uh, catechism or, um, yeah, yeah, doctrinal statement that was put together by some, some group of men back in the 1500s or 1600s. Um, yeah, so, they, yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, what's interesting is you were talking about the Baptist church that's like, 
you know, very fundamentalist. Did you use yes. the term fundamentalist? Uh, yeah, I or do. I, I I'm not sure if we use it the okay. same way, but. Yeah. Okay. So what's interesting, and you were like, you know, they believe that they're the one true church and that's, mm-hmm. you know, extreme for Baptists. And I'm like, well, that is very, I mean, that's what Mormons believe, you know, like they believe that they have the truth. I think it's um, not unusual for me to hear that. That's actually how my religion has always been, you know, very much like we have the truth, you know? So, um, okay. Well, let's get back to your story now that I understand the Baptist (laughs) faith a little bit more. Um, So you, by the time you were a freshman in high school, you were fully committed to be a Christian and specifically a Baptist. Well, so Baptist, I would say Baptist was more by default. And, and okay. yeah, so uh, because if I think back, if my friend had been uh, a Methodist and invited me and I had learned about the faith, I, in all likelihood, I could have been a Methodist. Um, but, you know, there's a Baptist church in every corner in Louisiana. And so the, the, the light is kind of sort of like the likelihood of someone being a Mormon if they're born in Utah, right? It's, it's probably going to be higher. a little bit higher, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and so anyway, uh, yep. I, I walked in, I, I still remember. So let me say this. So with being a Baptist, they certainly believe in a particular point, um, in someone's life where they're converted. And what that means is they, they specifically put their, they specifically pray to Jesus to save them. And for me, um, you know, being a 13-year-old, walking into the, this church for the first time, it was on a Wednesday night. It's a number of independent Baptist churches have a Wednesday night service. Um, and uh, I remember the pastor's son actually came and greeted me. He was my age, and his name was Daniel. He said, hey, um, nice to nice to meet you. Um, I'm the pastor's son. He said, his next question, and it kind of shocked me, he said, are you saved? <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, what does that mean? I really didn't, you know, know much that meant, but just how kind of, and how old were you at that? Uh, I well, I, no, I would have been 14. Okay, yeah. So uh, if and I'm doing like, my math, I don't right, know. I hope so. Fresh, fresh freshman in high school. So okay. um, yeah. And uh, so he he asked me this question, and I said, "Man, I I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I'm thinking I don't know." But I said to him, "Yes." <laughs> and so he <laughs> laughed. And uh, another thing I remember, and this was before the service even started, is um, I had brought in a uh, Bible that happened to be a different translation than their church used, and that's a whole other issue with a number of churches. They they like a particular translation, the King James Which Version. Tra- yeah. Okay. That's the one. We yeah. Use too. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. the one they think is inspired um, to to be used. So anyway, I had I had a new international version. He looked at me and he said, "You know," he said, "We're going to have to get you another Bible." <laughs> and so I'm thinking, "Okay, what, what am I getting myself into?" Um, but you know, I sat in the service and I was at a time in my life, you know, as a teenager, where I'm really trying to figure it out, and it was just things that I, I think I was just ripe for community. And yeah. And so, um, I was like, you know, I think, think this is something that might be a good fit for me. So, um, yeah, in my seat, I I remember just kind of praying a prayer the best I knew how, um, to the Lord saying, I don't know what I'm doing, but uh, you know, if you'd have me, you know, I'm, 
I'll follow you. And, you know, we, we, in the Baptist tradition, we do talk about the, you know, conversion experience. And for some people, it's, it's a very emotional experience. Yeah. Um, other people, not so much for me, it was a very energizing experience in that right after that service was done. And I, I had prayed that prayer kind of just of simple faith. I was ready to do anything. Um, I, I went up to them and, I, uh, the pastor's son and I said, Hey, um, do you guys like go and tell other people about this stuff? He's like, oh, yeah, wow. yeah, actually we do. We go every Saturday. And I was like, I'll be here. Oh and so not knowing yes. anything about it, but I was just, you know, I, I, I was sold. I, I was like, if I'm going to commit, I'm going to commit. You know, in Mormonism, we call that feeling the spirit. Mm-hmm. And so basically it's like we have the ability to feel God's spirit. We believe that as well, or, or the Mormon, the members of the Mormon church do. And, um, it's, um, that spiritual experience can be very powerful, can be very quiet. Sometimes it's like words in your mind. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's overwhelming sometimes, you know, but it's, it's true, true emotion. And Mm -hmm. for me, and, and I don't, I know for you, you know, later in life, and we'll get to this, but you kind of moved away from Christianity and uh, maybe religion in general, what do you think that feeling was like? Because at the time you, you thought that came from God and it was a very beautiful heartfelt prayer that you were like, you know, if you'll have me, I will do whatever it takes, you know, I'll be here and I'll, I'll be yours. And, you know, it's like such a beautiful offering to this being now looking back, what do you think that was that energy yeah. that you felt. Well, so here's my theory because I, I, I had another similar experience that was outside of Christianity. And um, so once I had, and we can get into how I can, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but let me say that um, I started really um, studying just some, you know, identity, a little bit of just understanding Buddhist concepts. And for me, and this um, was when later I, when you were a pastor, right? You, well, no, no, this is this is kind of getting. Um, yes, there's some there's some overlap. So yes, while I'm still a pastor, begin to study and question some of this stuff. But uh, and some once I had stepped out um, of the pastorate, okay. but yeah. when I was trying to make sense of my transition away from the faith. Um, it really resonated with me, this, this idea of identity. And, you know, as a 14-year-old, um, I had an identity that was really confused. And there was just something about aligning myself with an identity that was, um, it, it was a rejuvenation. It was kind of like I was, maybe a feeling of surrender. I was surrendering a part of me, you know, this identity that I, I wanted to be this way. And I thought this was what the way to success. And when I was willing to let that go for the sake of Christ, you know, at the time that there was that feeling. And I say, I had that same feeling because as I was now struggling with my faith transition going, well, how do I now identify as someone new? Um, and as I began to kind of study that and read that, I did have it's almost like an enlightening experience 
when I let go of identity. And I was like, you know what? I'm letting go of another. I'm surrendering and I'm embracing something else. And that was also, if you will, like a being born again. And it's funny because that's like terminology that's used, but I feel like... where yeah. do you think that comes from? Like, is that just in our brain? You know what I mean? Like, is yeah. that, because I've had those same experiences where I've felt very powerfully, yeah. you know, like that God loved me, or I've felt very powerfully that, you know, certain things and, and within Mormonism, you're taught that you can feel the spirit all the time. And there were times mm-hmm. in my life where I, I was, I felt like I was feeling those things all the time. Mm-hmm. And now that my beliefs have changed and that I no longer, for me, I've, I've stepped away from my beliefs really in God as well. I, I'm like, where, where does that come from? You know, yeah. because so many people feel it in so many different yeah. religions and, right. and just in life in general. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up that a number of different religions have this similar experience. And I do I just think it's this this releasing of ego or identity, this identification with something bigger than yourself. Um there's a guy named Darren Brown who's this mentalist and um I remember watching somebody sent me a YouTube video where he takes a girl who is an atheist into uh, a church and he begins talking to her and he gets her to um, uh, think about her father. And he's like doing these taps as well so that her brain is connecting these, you know, f- these good feelings with these taps. And then he, he does this tapping and then he leaves and he's trying, his whole goal is to try to get her to have a religious experience. And she does. She's sitting in this church and all of a sudden she's like looking up and she begins crying. And what's so interesting, and you can look up this video and sorry, I didn't send the link. I didn't know I'd reference it, but um, is that uh, she begins to talk about this experience afterwards and you couldn't convince her, at least the way it's portrayed in the video, that her experience wasn't real. To her, it was very real. Yeah. But what's interesting is this guy was able to bring it about by getting her to think of, it was a transcendent type of idea um, of a of a father and love and and it just all came together beautifully in that moment so that she could experience all now where does all come from and you know that's something that somebody like c.s lewis uh, you know a christian apologist tried to you know attach to to god and i know a lot of apologists try to do that but um I, you know, I think we're just wired in a way to when when our minds can emotions. get can get off of ourself and attach it to something bigger, whether it's a community or it's a feeling of a a big God, um, that we can have those types of experiences. That's just the theory of mine. People can debate it. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I for you know for non-believers, I think they're you know, for believers, it's, it's God, but for non-believers, we, there is a more scientific, uh, explanation, you know, and, and I think, like you said, we're wired. My belief is we are wired to feel, to have those emotions. Why? I don't know. You know, um, maybe it is part of evolution and just the way we evolved, um, you know, 
uh, I, I don't know. And we're wired to, to want to feel part of something and, and to feel emotions and, you know, anyway, but so for you, you had this experience, you felt saved. I mean, and it sounds like all through, I mean, you were gung ho. And so you, and you must have stayed gung ho because then you went to a Christian college and decided to become a pastor. Yeah. I said, I want to do this the rest of my life. I love this because, you know, I was out winning people to Jesus. (laughs) And yeah, uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, very thrilling. And those feelings never change. I mean, from the time you were 14 until you went to college, you felt that strongly about it? Yeah. So I was very zealous as a new convert is, um, I, with, you know, the, those feelings do, did go up and down and, you know, trying to make sense of them as a Christian thinking, well, I'm just becoming a lukewarm Christian. Uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I need to revive myself and I need to read more of my Bible or pray more. And so I certainly had those struggles. Um, and, and, you know, even certain demons that I always wrestled with and sins that I could never overcome. Um, but, uh, yeah, what, I stay- if you don't mind me asking and you don't, ha- you don't have to say at all, but what, what would be sins that you could never overcome? Like what would be considered a sin? Uh, yeah. So, um, a, a sin would be, um, like, uh, well, I could give you one, uh, like pornography, for example. So that's something that a lot of, Is uh, considered a sin by the Baptist yeah, church. Or absolutely. By- okay. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, so like for somebody who things. who didn't grow up in a Christian home, um, the access to stuff like that might have, you know, been more um, prevalent. So th- there are demons like that that I had to deal with um, after I became a Christian. That somebody who may have grown up in a Christian home uh, wouldn't have struggled with as much. So okay, tell me about that. Like, what does the, does eat in the Baptist faith? what do they teach about sexuality? Like, is your growing up as your, you know, like, are you expected to not have sex until you're married is, you know, what are kind of the expectations of sexuality? So, so in general, the expectation, yes, no sex until marriage. Um, What happens if you have sex before marriage? So you're, I guess you hinder your um, prospects for getting a good mate. So, um, you know, it's a conversation that, that'll come up probably in those, uh, um, uh, those initial conversations perhaps that you're having with somebody that you're interested in, um, you know, as, as they get, well, maybe not those initial conversations, but as it gets more serious. Um, and, uh, you know, it was kind of the idea they would give, um, metaphors like, um, you know, somebody being a, you know, crumpled up, you know, trash bag or something because they've been, you know, yes. uh, right. We, were, and, we had like the chewed piece of gum. Sure. In our church. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, I took that. I mean, that, that was something that, uh, you know, I tr- definitely wanted to, to keep myself, uh, within uh, the lines of that, but even the church I came from, you weren't allowed to kiss. Um, you weren't allowed to even hold hands. Um, Until it, what age? 
<laughs> so certainly when so you were like when you were a teenager, or? it was a no no. But like the college I went to, um, you know, even people who were engaged could not could not have physical contact. I mean, I mean, they were engaged to be married. There were people who they could be getting married in um, a week and. When they walked around campus, you, they couldn't hold hands, they couldn't hug, they couldn't do anything like that. Isn't it? It's so interesting to me how religions, one of the main tenets of most religions is like their control of sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's huge. It's everywhere. Yeah. It's so prevalent in the majority of Christian religions uh, but, you know, also in Islam and other religions around the world. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Like, they're the control of sexuality. What is that about? Wow. Um, I, so I, I think that evolution has, has um, you know, the, the idea of monogamy um, you know, people debate that and, and, and polygamy or whatever, just the idea of being with somebody, whether it's one or multiple people, but the fact that you're with them the whole life is a product of needing, um, that security to raise up, uh, a child. And, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, wow. With theology coming into the play, um, uh, you know, this is, <laughs> you weren't prepared good. for this question. No, I wasn't. <laughs> and it's a great question. And the- I think this is great. It's a great thing because it's not something we always think about, you know, it's like, oh yeah. So anyway. But- yeah. I, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, you do find that, that control. Um, but I, you know, I've really never explored why, and I think it's a great question. Um, yeah. um, you know, why is, you know, God so interested in what we do in our bedroom? Uh, I don't know. Um, and more so in my mind, it's, you know, obviously people say it comes from God, but in, in my mind, it's like, why are these people, these men specifically who are at the head of these religions and churches, um, why are they so determined to control other people's sexuality when often they're not often, I would say sometimes they're sexual deviants, like, you know, in the FLDS church, which is the fundamentalist Latter-day Saint church. I'm sure you've heard of, um, you know, Warren Jeffs, you know, was very controlling of sexuality, but he was, um, you know, a, a terrible, terrible sexual deviant. And, and it's just, you know, obviously that's an extreme example, but, but in general, I mean, I know within Mormonism, sexuality is very tightly controlled. And um, a lot of times we think it's maybe because of it's a way to keep people guilty, keep people in the religion. Not that, not that the leaders necessarily even thought that way, but it's like, you know, I don't think they yeah. intentionally so- were like, we're going to control these people. Yeah. So it's almost like it just came about. Yeah. So when I, when I think about it a little bit more, you know, uh, we take the 10 commandments and the one about, you know, not committing adultery. Um, the, 
you know, keeping a relationship together was essential, I think, for those early communities as it dealt with, you know, the raising of children. And, you know, back then, um, females didn't have a lot of rights and didn't have, um, didn't have the ability to, I guess, sustain the family um, provision. Uh, work the fields or go hunting um, like the the males would. So if a male ever left the woman, it would put her in a very bad place. And and some people would argue that the rights of women, you know, in the Old Testament, that men had to, you know, be a little bit more sure about their divorce and and how they're to care for the woman after the divorce, if 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 that was the case, that 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 was a means of of protecting. The woman now the culture has changed. Women are much more empowered, and uh, you know, a family staying together um, it doesn't have as much place. But let, let's go back to just specifically the sexual part of it. Um, you know, men wanted to marry a woman who had not been with another person, and I think that that was more of uh, ensuring that there was purity in his. Um, in the offspring. So I, I doubt that they had the science to know, um, you know, how that worked. I know they didn't, in fact. And so, um, you know, whether they had some, you know, ancient belief that uh, if a woman had had sex before, that somehow that would affect her offspring. And so therefore there needs to be purity. Um, you know, that that's how I tend to believe these things. I think they're just byproducts of of ancient rituals and and at the time it worked honestly and, and i've said this that the reason a lot of these religions have stuck around is they did work they you know they were uh, uh, from a they pragmatic provided something they did to the world they, to they, the community yeah and and it's just you know times have changed but the now those rules are are viewed as being inspired now you know and um and they stick around and and that's it, they just haven't been updated. So did you like being a pastor? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you know what I did? Um, I like studying and I like teaching. Um, they say a pastor has three main duties. Um, one is teaching, the other is administration, and then the last one is shepherding. Um, and I felt like I enjoyed teaching. I was really good at administrating. I wasn't very good at shepherding. And what I mean by that is I, I just, um, when it came to, you know, going visiting people in the hospital um, or uh, going and um, trying to put together a marriage, you know, two couples that are fighting and I'm, you know, going over to their house and I'm counseling them. I did those things, but I was, I always dreaded them. I, I, you know, I oh, would get the, yeah, I get the call and, hey, you need to go and visit so-and-so who's sick. And, of course, I would do it. It was my duty. But, um, yeah, I never I never looked forward to that. And some people, they love that stuff. I just didn't. So how did you um, – did you ever think about, like, not being a pastor before you went through your faith crisis? Yeah. Was there ever a time when you're like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore because I'm the shepherding part is not – working. Yes. Actually, I, I thought of it pretty, um, pretty frequently. And, and, and the reason was, um, when I felt like I wasn't being used to my fullest. So, you know, I'm pastoring a, 
um, at the times, you know, smaller congregations, maybe 150 people. Um, in some I was in, they had about 300 people and, and I, and I just felt like, you know, I probably could do a lot better out in the business world. And, um, I, I don't need all the personal stress too, cause it's pretty stressful, <laughs> you know, having so many people look up to you as a, um, religious example and expecting so much from you. I mean, the life of the pastor, you're, you're, there's never a nine to five, you know, it's, you're yeah. always on. And, and so without a doubt that did wear on me. And, and from what I hear in conversations with many other pastors, I think they all at one time think about leaving quitting. the minute. Yeah. Sure. Cause it's probably highly demanding. So, but you didn't actually leave until you had your faith crisis. So what kind of led to your. Yeah. So the very, the very first step on my journey was was stepping away or at least starting to step away from my particular flavor of Baptist. And there were some things like the, the King James translation and the insistence on a particular style of music. Um, they believed all music needed to be godly, which to them meant um, it couldn't, it couldn't be music that made you want to move your body. <laughs> so, Wait, who, it, who believed this? Cause if you were the pastor, wouldn't you kind of, uh, yeah, great, great. Say? Yeah. Great question. So even though I'm the pastor and I do dictate what is taught, there are still, there was a pastor before me, right? And there are beliefs that kind of carry over. So um, even though you may be the new pastor in town, you still have the baggage. Um, okay. And if yeah. you could go in there and completely change everything overnight, but you're not going to last long because that congregation is the ones who control your hiring and they control your firing. Okay. So, um, so I began questioning some of those things. Um, I never really aligned with the King James translation issue. I just didn't, that never made sense to me. Uh, but the, but the, the first, I think, step in my journey was there was a book called Crazy Love. And uh, it was written by Francis Chan. And it's very much a Christian um, evangelical type of book, getting people to be more devoted to God. But in that book, he gives this this um, analogy of somebody being on a deserted island. And what if they found a Bible? They'd never been taught anything about the Bible before. But they find this Bible and they begin to read. And he, and he asks kind of the question, would that person come to the same conclusions that you currently hold? And, and he, was, he was using that as an illustration because he said there's a lot of things that Jesus asked uh, of us in the, in the Bible, but we kind of reason them away. So, for example, he gives the story where Jesus says, you know, if you hold a feast, don't call the rich, but call the poor. Because if you give, you know, if you invite your rich friends over, they'll, they'll just repay you down the road. And they'll say, hey, you know, come over to our house ne next. He says, but if you bring in the poor, then, um, you know, they can't repay you. And, and that's more noble. And so he would take, you know, something like that. And he's like, how often do we, like, actually apply that and do that? And so when he gave that illustration, I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to read my Bible as if I had never heard anything about that, you know, the, from the Baptist or anything. And w what will I conclude? And so as I began to read it with these fresh eyes, there were verses that seemed 
you know, to contradict what I believed as a Baptist. And at first I didn't say, oh, okay, then I'm wrong. They're right. But what I started to do is I started to make a note. I created an Evernote. And I, I started putting things like, um, wow, this verse looks like you can lose your salvation. So there's, there's a belief that would be in contradiction um, to what a Baptist believe because they believe once you got saved, um, you're always saved. You're always saved. Yeah. No matter if you, you know, go off and you publicly say, I'm an atheist now and um, I don't believe in, you know, God anymore. They would say, well, you know, he's backslidden, but he, he's still saved. So, uh, but so I'm reading through and I, I see verses like that. Um, and I would write it down and I create this note. Well, once I got through the new Testament, I had like these lists that were full of these verses. And I was like, ah, I need to go through this again. So there were a number of doctrines that I began to question um, that were different than Baptists. And the one that caused me to leave my church was one over the, the second coming of Christ. And so my particular Baptist church believed that there was going to be this sudden um, they call it the rapture, right? And so suddenly Jesus is going to appear in the clouds and all the Christians are going to be caught up in the clouds. And it's everyone left on the earth. They're going to go through these, like the seven-year tribulation, it's called. And it's just going to be like hell on earth. And then after the seven years, then it's going to be a thousand years of just wonderful stuff. And then the last judgment. And then finally, all of eternity. So they've got this timeline really down. And um, I started studying this, this, um, this timeline. And I realized that, first of all, this is sort of a novel idea. Um, it kind of showed up only within the past couple hundred years. And historically, Christians um, or Orthodox Christians believed different version of the second coming and how things would plan out, pan out. And so Eventually, I concluded that uh, the Bible did not teach the rapture as the Baptist church um, taught. And, uh, and that was in contradiction to our, our statement of faith. So I sat down with, um, with my men, uh, the, the, the board or the, the, the deacons, um, and uh, I communicated this to them and uh, eventually uh, resigned. As pastor. As pastor. Now, it, it sounds simple, like a simple issue, but it, you know, it was a serious issue. Um, yeah. And so that left me without a pastorate. And so I was like, Were what do I do? at this point still a believer, like in Christ? Yes, very much. Okay. So still a believer. And now I'm looking for something that I can connect with. And so I found a guy online, um, and, and his name's John Piper, and he was a Baptist, so I'm like, good, but he was a different flavor of Baptist. He was um, what's called a Calvinist, um, which they have a different view on salvation in the sense that um, they believe that all people who come to Christ have been um, preordained. They've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world to come to Christ. And, and so a very, um, uh, it's not that, you know, they would, they would never hinder, uh, the message of salvation going to every person, but they did believe that, um, you are a select person, you know, you are specially selected 
um, if you are a Christian. And, and, and so the, the reason it was important that I aligned with him is because he was different than the flavor I was in, but he was still very much a conservative and probably I would still label him a fundamentalist in that he, he believed very much strongly about his beliefs and, um, and it was a good fit. But um, I moved at the time I was in California and I moved to Arizona because I was finishing up a master's degree that I had started. And um, I found a guy on Twitter who was a, a pastor at a reformed church and uh, reformed just describing these churches that hold to more Calvinist type beliefs. And so um, I go and I, I meet the, this pastor and there was another pastor as well. And they tell me their story of coming out of their churches and they were coming out of Church of Christ churches, which our stories were very similar. And we started questioning beliefs and then we eventually, and so it's funny, we found ourselves kind of at the same place in the faith transition where we had left what was familiar to us, but we were now um, in a new arena and um, they were into Christian apologetics. And I didn't, I didn't study Christian apologetics that much, you know, understanding philosophy and, and uh, arguing against atheists and such. And so as I, began to study Christian apologetics and I began to listen to the debates online, it sort of had the opposite effect on me. Interesting. Yeah. And because I I began to think, you know, wow, you know, that atheist made a really good point. And uh, I would study (laughs) it some more and I'd read the books and, and uh, I, I even, I was very open with this new friend of mine about my, journey. And, and what's interesting with him is they continue to journey as well. They, they found themselves in another Christian denomination by the time. Um, so they jumped again um, in their journey. I just happened to jump, I guess you'd say off the ship and they jumped to another ship. <laughs> you jumped off the ship and landed on what? Yeah. So um, it's still a journey. Um, and I would say that something that was really important uh, for me, uh, as I was studying, as I read this book by Edward Fudge, who was a Church of Christ pastor, about hell. And, um, you know, that's a scary topic, especially for somebody who is um, coming from a conservative evangelical type church. Because if you don't believe in Christ, you're going to spend an eternity in flames of fire. And so as I began to read this book, um, I began to learn that, hey, you know, even the Bible doesn't teach this literal eternal torment in in hell, but it teaches more of an an annihilationism. And so I I kind of felt that that was the case. And that sort of freed up my mind in a big way, because now I could explore topics without the fear that I was going to hell. Not that it's, you know, yeah, I'd miss out on heaven, but at least I would just be burned up. (laughs) So, um, that sounds horrible to say, but it was important. But you wouldn't be existing forever in like torment. Right. It was important for me because I needed that intellectual freedom that I wasn't, you know, uh, yeah. And and so that, that then led to me reading a number of books. And, um, I would say that 
you know, I was ready just to stand up and yell out to everybody, I'm an atheist. Oh, wow. But, uh, and, and there, there, was a, there was a time um, that passed for me to get there. But there was a book I read by a philosopher. He was an atheist philosopher named Anthony Flew. And the title of the book is There Is God. Now, Anthony Flew, he, he admits, I mean, he does not become a Christian. Uh, but in his life, he did become a deist. So he went from being an atheist to a deist. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with deism. Yeah. Um, but, okay. Yeah, so so basically believe that there is some supreme power. Um, yeah, just the existence of the supreme and, being or creator or whatever. Yeah, and, 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 and I think what his book did for me is, is it, not that it convinced me, it certainly didn't convince me to be a deist or, or convince me that atheism was not the way to go, but it did convince me to keep my mind open and consider myself to still be on a journey. So when people ask me, so where am I at now? Um, you know, practically I'm an atheist. I, you know, God, God doesn't have any part in my, my thoughts of the day and how I act and um, in my religious expression. Um, it, you know, uh, I don't have that. Um, but, but philosophically, I like to talk more in terms of probabilities. And I like to say that, you know, I, I can say, well, I'm, you know, 75% sure, 80% sure. Um, but until I'm 100% sure, which I don't, no one can ever be that. Possible. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like, you know, I like to say that uh, sort of like Bart Ehrman would say, he called himself a hopeful agnostic. And, you know, in other arenas, he says, you know, by all means, I'm an atheist, um, but I'm, but I'm open. And I, and I like that. I like, because for me, I found a lot of my problems was because I, I had attached myself to a strong identity. That's what I did when I was a Christian. And when I left my Baptist um, flavor, funny that I keep calling it a flavor, but <laughs> I think ice cream's on my mind. I'm thinking Baskin Robbins right now. Oh, yeah. um, um, but, uh, when I left that, you know, the next step in my journey was still very much a very strong identity. And through some other books I read, um, Sam Harris's Wake, uh, Waking Up, um, How to Be, uh, I guess it's religious or spiritual, yeah, I right? That book. Okay. Yeah. That was a very helpful book for me. Um, but it, it, I came to the conclusion that the true enemy, at least of myself, was a strong identity. And so, I oh, felt like if, if I just like stood ego. up, yeah, yeah. It, and I started just having a strong I am a blank again, that would just cause me a lot of the problems. So I happened to skip, I feel, a lot of the, the debate and anger that I see uh, in a lot of people who make a faith transition. That's what I was going to ask you is if yeah. it was like a traumatizing experience or if it's been okay. It was a loss of community, but I, it wasn't an anger toward, um, I, 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 it wasn't an anger toward the people um, or toward even my beliefs because I tried to see the positive from it. Um, for me, I wasn't in a Christian home at the time. And, you know, these people were great family to me. Um, mm -hmm. and so I just happened to try to, you know, my mind just chose to spin it more positively. In fact, I'm still friends with a lot of, you know, people. Um, I still 
respect them and I try to be kind to them. Um, and that's only possible because I haven't made my, I am, you know, the ego, um, such a, such a big deal. Yeah. Um, well that, that's, um, that's a very interesting story and I'm really grateful that you were able to come on the podcast and share that. Um, yeah, it's just very interesting. And I, um, I think all, all these different religions, as I talk to different people of, of other faiths, you know, there's a lot of similarities. There's obviously, you know, we, we come from similar backgrounds. We have similar beliefs. And I think everybody who transitions away from a faith goes through different experiences. Some people become very angry. Some people don't, you know, like you seem very well adjusted and and able to handle it. And, and there are good things. And that's, what's so hard is religion in general for me. Sometimes I feel very angry, (laughs) you know, sometimes I feel like religion is, you know, caused a lot, a lot, a lot of harm and much more harm than good. But when I think of my own life, I, there's a lot of good there as well that came from being a part of a religious community. And so, and I wouldn't wish that away, you know? So, um, anyway, thank you, Chris, for coming. Do you have any closing thoughts or? Well, I was, I I was going to say that the, one of the things that I struggle with, with, um, not having such a strong identity, um, with atheism and being more friendly, uh, to peers is that you can quickly um, lean to a more liberal version uh, where you still have the practices. Um, I find myself, you know, do I go and be a part of a liberal Christian organization or, or church? And, um, and I think that's just um, because I haven't taken as strong of a stand in my identity. Uh, and so that's something I have to work on. Yeah, it's always, it's like an evolving evolving process you know we jumped off the ship and we're not quite sure if it, there's land or ocean or sure we're trying to figure it out rocks you know so well yeah. thanks again for coming um on the show chris i really appreciate it and we will see you on the other side let's go in the garden you'll find something waiting right there where you left it lying upside On the Other Side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. Intro and outro theme for this podcast is Everything Stays, a Rebecca Sugar cover by Bly Wallentine. You can find more of Bly's music at blywallentine.com. Everything stays right where you left it.